it's time for Talking Pictures Trivia. A quick friendly reminder, the center channel is probably why you have to keep changing the volume while watching a movie. Welcome to Talking Pictures Trivia, the podcast in which a group of geographically challenged friends explore movies through trivia as an excuse to keep their friendships alive. I'm one of these friends and today's host, Nick, and with me is... Tom and KJ. Great to have you back as always. Additionally, joining us as a guest for this episode is... Ragnar. Thanks for joining us, Ragnar. Ragnar and KJ were teachers together in a past life. Ragnar is currently a real estate agent in the New Orleans area, so if you have similar movie tastes and are thinking of buying or selling your house, give Ragnar a call. Ragnar conveniently likes movies. For those joining us for the first time, we start off each episode with a movie quiz, as these pivotal questions will determine who earns today's trivia crown. Questions in the first round will be worth one point, and questions in the second round will be worth two points. Then, once the fierce competition is over, we followed up with our famous movie rant, Where Anything Goes. KJ, tell us about today's movie. Today, we are going back to 2018, and you know what that means. Movie Pass is in full swing. Anyone in the USA can spend $10 a month and see as many movies as you'd want in theaters on MoviePass's dime. In the month of April 2018, my wife and I saw Ready Player One, Isle of Dogs, A Wrinkle in Time, and John Krasinski's third movie, A Quiet Place. Nick will be quizzing us today. Nick, what is A Quiet Place all about? I thought this would be a fun one to watch, or in my case, rewatch, as the sequel, A Quiet Place 2, will be out within two days. So I thought this would be a great time to uh, revisit the original. This film is about a family of five, then four, then five again, doing the best they can to live in a post-apocalyptic setting in which the world is plagued by blind killer monsters with ultra-sensitive hearing. This movie is not to be confused with Bird Box, another 2018 post-apocalyptic setting in which the world is plagued by monsters whose sight causes its victims to take their own lives. Sensory-based monsters were all the rage in 2018, it seems. Tom, if you only had one word to describe A Quiet Place, what would it be? Family, KJ. Ragnar. Waterfall. And my word would be unique. It's time for question one. While there were a plethora of tense situations in A Quiet Place, how many on-screen fatalities occurred? To clarify, you had to see someone is dead or something. Did you have to see them dead or do you have to see them die? If there is something that you see die or is dead on a screen. Okay. Locked in. Locked in. Locked in? Confident KJ. Start it up. All right. So you didn't see their son die. You didn't see the raccoon die. I don't think you saw, uh, I don't know how to say his name right, John Krasinski die. I don't, you may have seen a monster die. So I'm going to go one monster. One. My answer is one. One monster. What is he talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I thought your eyes were wide open, KJ. Yeah. <laughs> they were. <laughs> That's right. Say he's a scaredy cat. <laughs> I am. <laughs> Ragnar. Um, I'm going to go with 
five. Tom? Yeah, in terms of seeing die or dead, people you, you that, that are that have died or are dead, you see four. Like are killed or are dead. Yeah. The point goes to Ragnar. And I think there may have been, I thought I clarified, but if we could see that they were dead or mm -hmm. were killed, and I said someone or something. Okay. Oh, something. Ah, crap. Okay. So yeah. I, 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 both. So uh, the five fatalities are Bo Abbott, and we do see the monster come and get him, KJ. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> but did we see the death? <laughs> but yeah. How did he get? He gets, uh, maybe the twist ending. We All see a, the a children are safe in Monster Land. We see a cross <laughs> that they're very sad about. Um, this now, is, a, this I, is a prelude to Charlie and the uh, Chocolate Factory. Yeah. It's Pinocchio all over this, again. This is where the Oompa Loompas come from. The, the next one is the raccoon. Now, I put raccoon oh, slash raccoons because I wasn't sure if it was just the one or the two, but they counted as one. So I don't, I'm not really sure. I know at least one raccoon was was harmed in the making of this film. Um, <laughs> the man in the woods. But that, uh, that was, I, I thought that was off screen as well. We hear the shot, but we don't see it. Am I wrong? Shot. It wasn't shot. Himself? It was the monster came. No, the monster came. Oh, he screams what, out loud. What movie yes, did yes, you see? Yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, Adios, mio. Lee Abbott, the monster comes and attacks him from above, and the monster itself. Now, I almost counted. Uh, I could have made it six, and I'm still going to give the points to Ragnar because he was closest. Technically, the wife of the man in the woods, we do see all bloody there, too. So if you want to take the raccoon out and put her in, you know, either way, uh, the closest was Ragnar. So I'm going to give him the point there. And really what I thought was interesting about this film, especially in the horror genre, they showed the monster early, yet still kept the suspense, which I thought was very interesting they don't hide it it's not predator we don't find out until the bitter end what it actually looks like we get a glimpse of it and all you really do is get glimpsed but enough to really understand there is a creature or a being out there what did you think about how it twisted some of these standard horror tropes well the suspense seems to be generated from the pregnancy so we get the rules early on and the rules are communicated cinematically and not with um, not with effort, uh, 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 not with narrative, right? Not somebody's not doing a voiceover where they say, "In the year 2020, the monster," you know, something like that, which is just like makes you want to rip your hair out. It's it's done through a kind of cinematic language, which is is very nice. This whole movie's done that way. Um, but where the suspense comes from is this idea of this woman having to quietly give birth to a baby and then preserve that baby in quiet. I think that for me, that's where the suspense came from and actually once the baby was kind of born i i actually enjoy the movie a lot less i think what one thing that in horror movies um it's the monster that you fear and and, and of course it's the case in a quiet place but i think the concept is so brilliant that uh what's what we're really afraid of is noise throughout the whole movie and so i think that's why even them showing the monster early we're still scared of making noise. That's what we're scared of as an audience. Uh, so I think that really 
was able to be sustained throughout the entire film. I completely agree, Ragnar. And I think one of the ways they show you how afraid you should be of noise are some of the little touches they do. And I'm, I'm sure we all saw this, but on the Monopoly board, right? They're not playing with Monopoly pieces. It's yep. with little pieces of cloth. You know, at the, whenever they pour the sand and they have to walk on the sand, there, there's so many things that make this, this universe feel lived in without being too obnoxious about it. And I, I, I really enjoyed being afraid of the noise um, throughout this whole movie. Yeah, absolutely. The attention to detail is just the little things like the Monopoly pieces really had a great profound effect because then you realize, okay, this is something any noise is really... And then you start thinking about how would you live in that world? And then that's why I think it's a very engaging movie. Yeah, post-apocalyptic movies do that really well, right? They, they kind of sit, um, they force you to imagine yourself in a similar circumstance, um, you know, and I think this movie does do that pretty well without the, the kind of, um, without the sort of, overly explaining how different things are done right we don't get like a lecture on how to catch fish <laughs> you just see him going and you know and get the fish but you still are able to kind of uh transpose yourself into that world it's time for question two why can't the daughter regan go down into the basement locked in locked in but i have no idea do you remember the scene they make a big deal of her trying to go in the basement. She's like, go, go, go down there. Yeah. No, I do. I just, I, I, I think, we'll talk well, about I guess it. what I'm trying to say is it's a good question. Why couldn't she go down in the basement? <laughs> That's why I asked it. Yeah, I, I, I actually found that a little illegible yep. in the movie. I'll, I'll say that. I have an answer, but I, you know, I had trouble with that. Yep. Locked in. And this, it's a great question. Uh, it's one of my pet peeves of the movie. It really kind of took me out of it. But yeah, locked in. Okay, Ragnar, we're going to start with you. So I've seen this movie three times, and it wasn't only until the third time that I actually put too much thought into it. The first two times, I was just like, they don't, the movie doesn't give you an explanation, and, and the parent, the, the father makes such a big deal about it. It's just kind of like, what's going on here? The best guess I have is that uh, due to her being deaf, um, she would uh, make noise without knowing she's making noise because of all the equipment that's down there and all the stuff that could make noise that's down there. Okay, Tom, what's your answer? I really had the same thing that the, I think neither child was allowed down there, but it was, it was because young people, there's a lot of small parts and a, a lot of um, detritus on the walls and things like that. And a child could knock that over and, and make a lot of noise. KJ. I, as I say, I don't know, but I, in my in my basement down here, I have areas that everybody's allowed, right? I mean, yeah, sure, but they generally don't because of, I mean, I don't tell them not to, but I try to make it clear that this is roped <laughs> off for me. So I just thought, like, in a world where you can't really go that many places without, I don't, where do they get all that sand without pouring sand everywhere? Like, give the guy a basement. Like, come on. So, you know, just personal space for john krasinski dad cave okay exactly i'm gonna give kj half a point <laughs> for originality the full points are gonna go uh, one point each to tom and ragnar 
This is something that when I watched the film, I had to process because I do agree. And I think Ragnar alluded to this. That's one of the things that they don't really tie up with a bow. And you really have to think, wait a minute, why can't she go there? You know, what's, what's the big deal? And it does come down to noise. There's a lot of equipment and radios that she could make noises and couldn't even hear if she turned something on by accident. And yes, there's the normal tripping over dirty basement stuff, but specifically that's where a lot of the uh, equipment is that could make noises. Now, the reason I brought this one up is we started to talk about it a little bit or uh, brought it up in the last question, but the silent lifestyle, have, uh, Tom brought this up, it makes us think about what it would be like to live in that. I mean, I really think it transported the audience into that environment. So I really just wanted to talk a little bit about what they did right with that. If there's something they missed that was unrealistic, just what our thoughts are about the silent lifestyle. Well, it gave the filmmakers an opportunity to uh, tell a story with, in a cinematic way, in a visual way, right? We don't get a kind of lot of dialogue explaining things. And so they themselves have to sort of, um, they, they, they have to innovate much like the people do in these circumstances in order to deal with the, you know, the kind of uh, generating a narrative. Actually, when they talk, the movie kind of sinks like when they go to the, you know, the waterfall and have that kind of saccharine conversation about love or something, um, you know, that, that the, the movie like really dips at that point. Um, and so I think that the silence allowed for minimalism in the film um, in terms of what did they do right in order to grasp or get at uh, deafness. I, you know, I, I, I don't, I haven't studied American sign language. My understanding though is from looking at that, uh, critical reviews and whatnot is that the different characters signed in the manner of their personality. So John Krasinski's Lee signed kind of quickly and bluntly. Um, it wasn't kind of great, you know, it wasn't a one graceful motion into another. It was kind of um, more to the point. And the girl who played his daughter, who's actually his deaf, sort of coached them, I think, in that way that they would sign in character. And that sign language does have a sort of um, a sort of tenor to the way you do it, even though it's not vocalized. Yeah, I think they said John uh, signed very bluntly, and Emily signed very Krasinskily. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. <laughs> not that, sorry. That, that was a joke, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. That was a joke. <laughs> ahead, I will say, KJ's wonderful joke aside. I didn't realize that, but now that I think back, that makes sense. And I like that touch, which I was not even aware of when I was watching the film, either time. <laughs> so Nick, you asked about the basement and there's been a few things that maybe during the movie ran, I'm gonna wanna nitpick on this movie. Um, but in the basement, you, you know, there's a white erase board. And as an engineer who, who loves and uses white erase boards all the time, it really bugged me that written on the dry erase board, it was something like monsters use sound. And I- What is their weakness? Yeah, what is their weakness? Monsters yeah, use sound, right? Oh, yeah. And it's sort of like, so bad. How many years has that been there? Like he can get rid of the white board or he just wrote that recently again to remind himself. I mean, it was for the mm -hmm. audience, right? That's, but that was yeah. nice nitpick about yeah that. maybe maybe that was the sloppy exposition right 
it still is in the background. It wasn't like they panned to it, right? Like they didn't. They did it, but yeah, I. They did. It was yeah. It's still I get where you're coming from. It's kind of like yeah, we we know your whole life is based around being quiet. <laughs> well, if we want to p- nitpick the silent lifestyle with things that are not realistic, those cornfields were clearly uh, planted with industrial equipment to have those clean rows and all of that. Yeah. So I'll give it to them. I'll give it to them. But we know that corn that you plant in the ground doesn't grow like that unless you have uh, assistance. <laughs> Yeah, it, those there were some details that really I, I didn't think of the corn thing. That's going deep. That's pretty good. Uh, the the whiteboard with the they zoom in and I think more than once where he writes down what is the weakness. It's like, do you really need that? Do you really need to write that? Do we need to show? It, it was a, a a small detail that broke the magic for me because they were doing such a great job with the monopoly board and everything else. This really broke it for me. And the other one that really bugged me was uh the characters kept putting their finger up to their lips and going Shh. it's like we know we've been in this world for year for years or whatever it is we know we have to be quiet you know so that they kept doing that i understand for the deaf girl that's fine but for everybody else it doesn't make sense and that it kept i don't know why it bugged me so much it made sense when the guy held his when uh krasinski held his finger up as warning to the man who was yeah. about to scream mm-hmm. it was more of a, a signal to him to not do what he's about to do but i yeah i yeah after round one ragnar is in the lead with two points tom has one and kj convinced me to award him half a point we'll be right back after this quick break i know i always misplace things in the bathroom My hair comb, my shampoo and conditioner, toilet paper, collection of Mayan tribal masks, toothpaste. What a mess. This year, clean up your act and your bathroom with the new time-saving, space-saving razor blade toothbrush. Half a face razor, half a toothbrush. The razor blade toothbrush allows you to brush your teeth and shave your face with the same instrument. Just stick the pointy end in your mouth and hit the turquoise button. Turquoise stands for toothbrush and clean those pearly whites. Take the pointy end out and hit the lime button. Lime stands for love my razor blade toothbrush. And an incredibly sharp straight razor shoots out and you can remove even the thickest of hairs from your face or, for the ladies, your legs. That's Razor blade toothbrush. Pack it together. And we're back. Ragnar, we're at the critical point of our show where we ask the guests a key question. If you could watch this movie with anyone, dead or alive, who would it be? And I've been putting a lot of thought into this one, and I, I wish I had a great answer, but I, I don't. Because I don't know any deaf people. Um, that's basically my answer. I, I want to watch it with someone that can't hear and just get their insight onto how they live their lives and, and how they would live in that type of environment. Um, you know, so I, I, I don't know anybody, but I think that would be a very, very interesting watch where someone can give me 
some insights to the movie that I can't get from anyone else. That's a great thought. Now, I'm going to bring this up in the questions to come, so I don't want to go into it too much. But for a, a, a film where they could not speak, there sure was a heck of a lot of sounds at this film. So I wonder how someone who was hearing impaired would actually experience this film. Would they be able to pick up on certain things that we didn't, or are there certain elements of this film that they would not be able to pick up on because a lot of it was auditory? So that's an interesting yeah. perspective. I think they would be audience. able to give me insight until, because I think it's a double-edged sword because they know how to be quiet because they can't hear themselves. So they don't speak and, and they can navigate the world like that. But they also don't know about the sounds they make, you know? So maybe at their homes and their apartment, they're knocking things harder than they intend to. So they could tell me stuff like, oh, you know, I wouldn't have thought of that monopoly thing or, or something like that you know the noises that that they make without knowing it could be a very hard a big detriment to them in that world yeah i would think the same thing would be that you know hearing is actually quite a skill to have in this world what what enables the abbott family is that they all have to know sign language for their daughter they've all learned this so they're just able to continue using language um with, without pause which seems to give them a sort of evolutionary advantage. But um, in, in terms of the youngest daughter, like she's never heard a door open, right? You know, like how, how loud you're supposed to do that or whatnot. Um, and the, the, the level of sound you're able to make seems to be very, very low in this movie. I mean, if you, if you can't tap Monopoly yeah. pieces, yeah, you, you're, <laughs> you have to be rather subtle with your movements. The, uh, I, I read the IMDb trivia, um, and one of the things it said was originally they weren't going to have subtitles for the sign language. Mm -hmm. And in the one of the last screenings, they added that in, and they said it just made a very big difference. I can imagine. Yeah, yeah they didn't yeah. need to be there. Yeah. I, I think they could have what they could have done if they're kind of trying to immerse you more is some of the action scenes, in particular, the one in the truck, the pickup truck towards the end, uh, when you see it through the girl's point of view, you see this monster attacking the truck and you don't hear anything. And that was terrifying. And then I was hoping that they would keep the whole scene like that, um, which I think would have been very effective, but they kept kind of coming at, going out of it and you can hear the monster. So I think keeping it in her perspective where you can't hear anything would have been very effective more so or, or more immersive i should say than not having subtitles for the for the signing it's time for question three sign language and whispers go a long way in this world at what time stamp do we first hear verbal communication at a normal speaking decibel level i'm gonna lock in locked in locked in kj start us up uh, 45 minutes. I'm going to say 34 minutes. I wrote down 36 minutes. Okay. <laughs> the points, <laughs> two points, go to Ragnar. Oh. This occurred at almost exactly the 38-minute mark in uh. this hour and 30-minute runtime <laughs> film. Mm -hmm. And I believe you could probably share with me what scene it was, Ragnar? At the at the river. 
the waterfall the specifically, son. but yeah, the waterfall. Yeah, the, yeah. Wa- the waterfall. When they're, he's saying, you know, it's safe. Trust me. Exactly. Holler like mm-hmm. Exactly, and this is where I didn't want to go too much into it in our question earlier there, but there was a lot of sound in this film. So I thought it was very interesting that even though we fear noise, we hear noise and sound throughout the whole movie. Tom, one of your favorite words is coming up in this one. Diegetics, huh? You want to talk about that a little bit? (laughs) Yeah, they really don't play with kind of diegetic sound too much. I mean, one thing you mentioned, Ragnar, was jumping into the little, the, the, uh, not the little girl, but the daughter's POV, at which point the diegetic irony here is that there is no diegetic sound, right? Um, And Outside of that, though, the soundscape was fairly normal. We're actually more interested in absence than in inclusion, I would say, right? I mean, yeah, but then the punctuation of every sound was awesome. And and actually, Tom, I, I know you're a big fan of uh, De Palma's movie Blowout. Mm-hmm. I was hoping for more of this type of stuff in Blowout. Like, I so when I, 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 the, what, when I watched this uh, for this time, I had my my good headphones on and listened, and I loved all the different sounds that I heard during the movie. It was great. It was a a audiomatic experience. Yeah, I don't know if Tom, if you heard all of that, or if you had the volume pumped up, because there is a lot actually going on. Even though dialogue is absence, there is a ton of sound throughout this film, which jumped out a lot at me too. Sure, there's a ton of sound. What is, in terms of kind of modulating between diegetic sound and um, an included sound or soundtrack sound, what did you, what did you find that jumped out at you or or helped situate you? I, I don't know about every time they jumped into um, Reagan's POV, but when we weren't in Reagan's POV, the sounds we heard were very well foliaged, very well made. And I enjoyed that aspect of it. it is why I'm bringing a blowout. Like that's what I thought we were gonna, mm-hmm. we were gonna get these high quality sound bites. And because they were up against the absence of sound, it was even more stark and more obvious that these sounds were occurring. Here's the way to articulate it. Whenever there were certain sounds, I became fearful. Was that sound too loud? So, for example, they were coming out of the storefront and there was rustling of newspapers, okay, that were sitting there in like a stand. And they're, fl- I'm like, is that too much sound? Is that going to be a problem? What are we going to do? Like, so that's what I mean by the, the effectiveness of sound in this so, so called silent society or silent lifestyle. It just was amazing to me that I was embedded in the actual film, worrying about everything I heard. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a, a function of the narrative, right? You're nervous about, you know, what you're going to hear or whatnot. And, and by virtue of the narrative, the, the normal sounds of the world become vital. They demand your attention. Yeah. And I think that's, uh, I think that's, I think we should attribute that to the Foley artist. <laughs> okay. I, I think if, if we had less quality sound while watching this, I don't think the film would have worked. Yeah, you, you, I, I think they have a lot of attention to detail. And I think Krasinski builds that drama. I, I agree with that, yeah. 
I agree that the sounds were all fantastic. You know, they did with less, they did more, I think. Um, one of the things that bothered me a little bit, um, and I understand why it was done, was the unnatural, uh, what's the word I'm with, increase in sound of a, oh man, I'm not disappointed. All right, so when they're playing Monopoly, the sound is natural. You hear everything that it is as it is in the world, but then the kid accidentally knocks over the lamp and it makes a gigantic sound, you know? And I was listening to it in my surround sound speaker. So it just like shook the room. And it is to indicate to the audience, hey, that's dangerous. But it broke the spell of like everything being as it is in the world. And it just felt like a cheap, I'll give them poetic license on that one. I don't know. I, I, I liked everything else going on, but I, I get what you're saying. The realism may have been uh, inaccurate. Yeah. I, I wish they stuck to it a little bit more and, and avoided less of the horror tropes. Uh, you know, they even had flashing lights, you know, when the aliens would come near, you know, it's just another, that's another horror trope of the flashing lights that don't quite work. So eh, I thought the movie was, was kind of like better. It's time for question four. How many in-movie days do we experience as an audience? Oh, locked in. Uh, locked in. Uh, so Nick, are you asking, like they told us it was this many days, it was this many days, it was this many days, and you want us to subtract? Or do you want us to say, well, we know that that was a day and that was a day and that was a day, so maybe three-ish? You see what I'm I trying to I'm not saying three, days, but... How many days occurred? I'm not subtracting anything. If we've seen a piece of a day, you've seen that day. Does that answer your question? No, because the movie starts and says X amount of days since something. And then later on, it says Y amount of days since something. Do you want those? No, no. Total? I want the actual amount of days we experience. Okay. Okay. Got it. Oh. So we don't include those like 400 and odd days. Yes, we're not counting how not not the elapsed time from when these creatures came to where the movie ended. How many days? How many in movie days do we experience as an audience? Locked in. I'm still locked in. I understood. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Tom, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not a damn fool. <laughs> when you say day, do you mean? <laughs> do you mean year by day? <laughs> Sun's up. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if we were on Mars. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> KJ. Uh, three. There was the day they went shopping. That was a rough day. There was the day that we see and a lot happens. Like they go to the waterfall. They're not allowed in the basement. And then that night they have some fireworks. And then the next day I'm assuming we see. So three. Three. Copy paste what KJ said. Yeah, I had three. I had day 89 and 472 and 473. Tom has it exact, <laughs> but everyone gets the points. So you were eating fish. <laughs> he can read. <laughs> He's 30% deaf, but he, he just can't spell fish. Hey, he heard my question perfectly, okay? <laughs> so the answer is three, and... This is really what I want to get into, quality versus quantity. What we did see was very impactful. And what I thought was really interesting about this film, I was watching it with my wife, and we're at like maybe the minute 45 mark on this 
film. And she's like, isn't this the end of the movie? I'm like, no, this sequence just goes on for like half the movie. It's like, it's the suspense and the action, which was crazy to me. I, I just didn't really pay attention to it. I guess the first watch, but literally it was like 45 minutes in and we realized this is the end sequence unfolding for the next half of the movie. Yeah, it, it rides, it, it does ride. Um, and, and the collapse time also helps too, because there isn't, the movie isn't that interested in world building. Uh, blessedly uh and uh, you know in in apocalyptic and post post-apocalyptic movies there's so much world building very often you can think of the terminator movies with their skynet and freaking time travel ironies and all that um th this movie is far more interested in family than the familiar and by keeping everything condensed it um it forces them to focus on these people and their relationships while also keeping the, the tension very high, you know, um, that, that aided in, in, you know, keeping like the, the heart rate racing. Um, but I, I think the real benefit was, you know, having these characters remain close together. I think that that kind of ran out of steam for me with some of the more saccharine scenes, um, you know, which kind of are, are kind of hair pulley. Um, but, the the compressed time, especially centered around the, the pregnancy, uh, worked quite well. I think that by limiting the amount of action sequences, because there was the one at the beginning, and then, like you said, you know, the last forty <laughs> yeah. minutes, mm. that sandwich, the, the right in between, is a lot of character development. Um, that I think sometimes moves into sentimentality a little bit, um, but. It, for a horror movie, it's a lot. It's a lot of great character building, um, you know? And so when, once you have characters that you, you, you like and you care about, you only need that one action scene um, because you as an audience are completely engaged in it rather than like, you know, every 10 minutes, somebody gets killed off. It's just not that effective compared to what A Quiet Place did. It's a similar pattern to The Matrix, isn't it? Matrix starts with that one action scene and then you have the training, the training, the training, and then everything after that kind of takes place in the Matrix until the end. It's one, once they go try to find Morpheus or whatever it is. A, a lot of the Matrix, a lot of the Matrix still though. still faster pace, which is amazing for me to say because at the time I would have thought the Matrix was faster pace, but. Oh, this is, I mean, this is also so much shorter than the Matrix. Um, and you're, you're getting just, you're getting less information. I mean, this is like 90 minutes long. I, th I don't even think that. Matrix has got to be two hours. You, right? It's actually, I think you're on spot on. It's an hour, 30 minute runtime. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's the, 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 the Matrix also does this thing with world building, which, I mean, we're calling this movie a horror movie and, and fair enough. It has a lot of those tropes, but it also does have the kind of science fiction-y thing of like the world is ended. And, you know, I, I do think it also falls under the kind of post-apocalyptic uh thing uh, you know I, i'd compare it to like uh, george romero's night of the living dead that's the first one i get the names of them i think it's night night dawn day is that right anyway yeah okay right. yeah. um you know which also is a movie which has a very very simple world building and a condensed space in which you're in uh, it, that movie is nowhere near as good as this you know that movie doesn't have as nearly as good acting um it, it's ne not nearly as conscientious uh as this film um this movie actually is, is quite 
quite beautiful to look at at times. Uh, when you see John Krasinski's character Lee lighting the fire, it's it's a really beautiful shot um, towards the beginning of the movie. But they both have the similarity that's that's sets them apart from the Matrix, in which the um, the social dynamic is far more important than the world building. The world building just isn't isn't really a thing in either of those pictures. Um, you know, and you could compare it to like uh, um, The Walking Dead, where the world building is far more important. And a lot of The Walking Dead is about the, our main characters walking into different worlds, right? Walking into different communities and how that's constructed. Here, it's really this, it's really about the farm. And the fact the whole thing takes place on a farm, I think speaks more to that familial thing it's it's a small life a family life a return to the farm a return to agriculture a kind of safety in that this really what was the kind of an, a, and i wrote this in my notes a sort of a, a jeffersonian idea of how life would be right it would be families on farms and that's where independence and safety comes from right we think of you know that that's where kind of safety from tyranny comes from and that that's where their safety comes from is this focus on just the group of people and the farm life. This is a bit of a tangent, but one of the things I'm actually concerned about with the sequel, I don't think this movie was designed for a sequel. The thing that really made this movie mm -hmm. special was that it kept it small. And all of a sudden now we're gonna be thrown into a giant world building experience which I'm going to see it. I'm going to see what it's all about. I mean, they're, they're going to get my money, let's be honest here. But that is my concern when you take something, even the way this film ends on a question mark. Yes, we know they now have a secret weapon. And of course, we got a you know obligatory pump the shotgun, you know, to say, hey, we're going to take care of this. What a wonderful ending. Now it's going to branch out and I'm concerned. And you could even see with the trailer, right? They're, they're talking like the only people left are the people you don't want to save. You know, that, that kind of. Yeah. yeah. I just don't want it to lose what made yeah. it so special. And it still probably will be enjoyable. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. But mm. th this movie did not look like they were trying to build a franchise. Let's put it that way. Mm. Yeah. Nick, I think that's spot on. I think that's spot on. I think everything that made this movie special is kind of the opposite of what's going to happen in the sequel. You know, um, it's it, it's a unique movie, a, a, a kind of a first time you see a magic trick. So the second time, it's not going to be that great. And it, it's unorthodox in that it's a post-apocalyptic horror movie that is not about banding realms of humans at their worst. You know, it's more like a humanitarian you know the family together these are humans almost at their best fighting this horror and now we're going to get the mad max the road again but this time you can't make noise so i think it's going to go from something very unique to more less character development more scares less originality yeah i'm also nervous about the sequel and i really wish they called it a quieter place how peaceful does that sound? <laughs> like <laughs> the quietest oh, place. The quietest place is just death. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can't even sign. That's too loud. <laughs> we can't hear you sign. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's it. Yeah, you, your hands get chopped off. That's the quietest place. In the quietest mm -hmm. place. No one can hear you sign. 
<laughs> Looks like Ragnar's taking this one down with six points. Tom following up with three and KJ on the board with two and a half. So congratulations, Ragnar. It's time for Movie Rent. So I did have a bonus question uh, just in case we came to the need, which we didn't. So I figured I'd throw it out there anyway. And it may be a little bit outside the, the movie, but we'll see. The question is, can you drown in corn kernels? This is a you can true be, or false uh, or yes or no. <laughs> I was going to say yes. You could be people like there's like 20 or 30 people who die in. I want to get everyone else's oh. opinion. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've actually looked this up <laughs> before seeing the movie. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to say, yeah. I don't know if it's how the mechanics of it like whether you have too many you swallow too many or or you just suffocate i don't know but i would say yeah yeah if your lungs were full of corn kernels you're you're not going to be breathing no. so i don't know if, i don't know if you're, you're being funny with the word drown or but yeah i think you would die if you were stuck in the corn kernels i'm referring to the scene where they sink in the corn kernels like uh quicksand so technically yes there's something referred to as either grain entrapment or grain engulfment. Usually it occurs when somebody, if you're in like a silo situation, is taking corn kernels out the bottom. So it creates a disparity and then you can get sucked in and you actually almost get crushed because you can't breathe. And it doesn't mm -hmm. take much for you to get stuck. Even if you're like your lower part of your leg, like people can't pull you out. There's another thing that happens when there's, I don't know, the corn isn't in good shape. It's almost diseased. It creates almost these empty cavities or, or voids. So something may look like it's flat and then you get stuck in it. So I did look this one up to see how realistic. I think the scene that's portrayed in the film is actually not realistic uh, when they fall in there and immediately sink unless the bottom was open and, and corn was being pulled out and there's a suction pulling them down. But this is something that apparently Tom not watching this movie, uh, but still just for his own general enjoyment, decided to look up of how many people um, have tragedies with being stuck or drowning in corn. I think it was like a Dr. John's bathroom reader, one of those that kind of inspired nice. me on, you know, weird deaths <laughs> and whatnot. But yeah, they, uh, they sure do fall in corn. <laughs> so the, the answer is it was inspired by things that could happen, but not necessarily mm -hmm. the way that specific scene would. Yeah, you would need happen. kind of like an air pocket. Yeah, create like a, a press down, I guess, I suppose. Yeah. The whole time I was watching the movie, I'm like, are all the dogs dead? Yeah, probably. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> I would like, think so. They're yeah. all like, yeah, I mean, they're all gone. Well, Although it's, it's surprising that those raccoons made it that long, you know? Uh, they're pretty quiet, but in the sequel, uh, yeah, I they're... guarantee there's a dog that can't bark, and that's <laughs> <laughs> gonna be the last dog, right? That's... Yeah. <laughs> Some dogs are out there worth saving. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Oh, quiet man. place too. If there is the good boy, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. A surface animal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can see cats kind of like you know they're like hey let's be quiet mm -hmm. you know but dogs no way yeah they're probably they're all gone. gone so one of the things this movie did remind me of was uh passion of the joe <laughs> passion of what? joan of arc passion of the joan of arc <laughs> passion of the joan of the arc um 
there's there's a particular scene where Reagan, I think, is in her bedroom, and they're constantly zooming in on her face, and it just gave me Joan of Arc vibes from you know the movie we had done previously. And I, I there's some pretty corny uh, John Krasinski things where he does these dramatic pauses. It was, I, I mean, he directed it right, so I, he must have really wanted to do these dramatic pauses, <laughs> and those didn't work quite as well. But again, it, it kind of reminded me of um, the Passion of Joan of Arc. That's a hard sell for me because that is so yeah. impactful that in the passion <laughs> that I didn't go there. But yeah, I could see maybe with the daughter because there's an absence of sound and that's where we're getting that silent film vibe from. Mm-hmm. I didn't get it from uh, the father figure at all though, but maybe the daughter. But that you're referencing something that is really something special. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I would say also that Joan of Arc is interested in making, I keep using the word legible, but um, making legible faces and illegible um, sets or the space they're in. The space they're in in Joan of Arc is really kind of hard to read. The faces aren't, right? That's why we're so close to them. Here, the, the surroundings need to be legible because something can come out from anywhere. Right, once the noise is there. And so by by being in the woods and being in the farm, which is, you know, has the these uh whatever, seven foot high corn stalks, um, it, it creates these kind of this curtaining effect where the monster can be behind any any tree, any bit of corn, any space. And so you really want this kind of mid-level shot where you're capturing the individuals and and the space surrounding them, because that's where the, the, the tension is balanced. Do you remember her bedroom? I don't remember her bed. What was in her bedroom? And I think that's the scene. I think they didn't show you her bedroom. I mm-hmm. think they they played, they, they did the Joan of Arc idea where they did keep it close on her face. They didn't show you the, the, the bedroom. They didn't make it a spot where the monster could jump out. It was a safe spot where she had a chance to um, be sad about feeling like she was neglected by her dad. Is that when she like packs up to go visit her yeah, brother's when she goes for grave? The yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't remember yep. the room. I remember her going, you know. Exactly. That's Kish's that's point. <laughs> is that, yeah, you don't see the space. But what right. would be, what would, what's the intention there? I think to show she's struggling emotionally because she blames herself for her mm-hmm. brother's death and is desperate for the approval and acknowledgement of her father. Yeah, she she's isolated, mm-hmm. so she's a person who's not who's not in the the farm space in the same way the other ones are because she feels you know personally personally responsible. Okay, I, I don't really see the Joan of Arc thing. I think Joan of Arc is doing something. You know, I think Dreyer is doing something else with those close ups. But I, I get the idea of being that that the kind of zoom in signals isolation and i suppose you could say joan is isolated in joan in in joan of arc right she's isolated from the the accusers um there's just yeah there seems to be i it may be the case that close-ups kind of help with isolation right that that's what they do i feel like the callback to joan of arc i don't know that's a that's a bit much for me to swallow but i i think the idea of of isolation makes sense as a close-up as being communicated via close-up so the other question i had right we're we're in a world where you can't make noise unless you're next to a waterfall okay Mm -hmm. if you're next to a waterfall waterfalls create white noise and you can talk 
humans are surprisingly good at making white noise. We have, I have a white mm -hmm. noise machine up in my bedroom to help me sleep. And they have consistent power. They have very reliable yeah. power. Why not create white noise bubbles all over the place and live a relatively normal life where the monsters can't see you? They're blind in the, in the white noise bubbles. In fact, if you're really clever, you might be able to make a white noise perimeter and keep extending that and extending that and extending that until you get like little city states where you know the monsters won't cross the white noise uh, fence, so to say. Um, and it would have made for a terrible movie and it doesn't really <laughs> matter. And mm -hmm. maybe that's what A Quieter Place is all about is setting up these <laughs> white noise fences. Yeah. Well, that gets a little bit more into world building, but if we go down that path, we also don't know where they're getting this un like unlimited supply of power. I would think that they have a finite resource. Say they have solar, say they have something going on. It probably doesn't have the amount of power that they need to create that consistently going. Maybe it's enough to maintain when we got to flick the red lights on for a warning. So I would say, even though they don't do a lot of world building, that may be a restriction. That That's just the way I would look at it. Even the things that they have running, they don't have everything going. It's just the basic equipment uh, that they need for monitoring and, and whatnot. But that's my thought there, yeah. of how they try to contain the power usage to, to block out that kind of sophistication. I guess that would be the most important thing though, right? <laughs> yeah, I would do that over red and white lights. You wouldn't need mm. the red lights anymore. Yeah, yeah, but this caught everyone off guard. We don't know how much decimation they had before people could get organized. Yeah. It's been over a year. It's been how many are left? 73 days. How many mm -hmm. are left? That's the thing. Maybe we're going to find out in the sequel. I mean, but that's John Krasinski is building an earpiece for his deaf daughter by reading encyclopedias. Mm. It is a lot easier to generate something that goes. <laughs> <laughs> like, I don't know. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think KJ has a point. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, even if it's about the white noise perimeter that one seems a little bit weird but uh <laughs> but i mean it just conceptually why isn't she giving birth when why aren't they planning for her to give birth near the waterfall yeah that'll make a lot that more actually sense. is a good point yeah <laughs> no, why, why, I they think, I think, why didn't they build a the perimeter waterfall? around her that just constantly kept going <laughs> yeah. i mean yeah. like why not build the dwelling it, next to the waterfall and then go yeah, to the farm the waterfall, for the food mm -hmm. The waterfall is a big. It, it makes it causes a big problem for the movie. I think and more so than what it adds to the movie, which is just a small moment for the father and. I think them at the river being able to whisper is fine. Mm -hmm. um, I think the waterfall really kind of screws things up, and I guarantee you there's going to be a waterfall in the thing. So the the waterfall is called back when she gives birth, and the monster comes in. She's able to avoid. Losing the baby to the monster because she goes under where the water is falling in the basement. So that that's sort of narratively. You're right. Okay, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Um. So you you need it for that. I. But I know. think the fireworks set that up. Like we get it. Like larger sounds protect mm. smaller sounds, and I yeah. think the fireworks do a much better job than the waterfall does. Yeah. The river. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just leave it at the river. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I. It's, I I just had a problem with the waterfall, but yeah, and it's also the scene isn't very good either, right? You right. you get this kind of this trek when they, you know, when they have this conversation. I think what works 
probably the best, in my opinion, for this movie is the cinematography. Um, it's just absolutely next level. It's so beautiful, so lush, so dynamic, but without being flashy. Um, my favorite shot, what well, probably is my favorite shot, it's right at the beginning uh, when the kid has the, the rocket, uh, how everyone slowly turns. And then when you see the kid get swiped by the monster and then his father is in the scene, in the shot. I thought that was just wonderful. And the cinematography, cinematographer, I'm sure I'm butchering her name, Charlotte Christensen, um, is, you guys, if you haven't seen The Hunt or any of her other movies, she's phenomenal at what she does. Yeah, it was great. And it, it didn't feel like a, a Marvel movie where it forced you to watch it because cut, 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 cut. Mm -hmm. It it drew your eye into the right spot on the screen, the right direction they wanted you to go. Yeah, it was. I, I agree, Ragnar. Yeah, it's it's well blocked. One, one example of this, I think, is when you have the, the old man um, and the way that we, we see this, we see the we see from the boy's level. The camera is centered on the boy and the father, Lee, is, is walking ahead of him. Um, and so the boy is at like mid-back level. And we see something blurry in the background stand up. And the, and the boy just smacks into his father's back because he doesn't notice it. And you, you're able to get, not just with the cinematography, but also with the way the, the actors are blocked in the space, too. You're you know, able to communicate there's a threat here that this kid doesn't see. Um, and, you know him falling into his father's back then you know is able to communicate that yeah they're, they're able to communicate a lot with um with the with the way people are moving in the space uh, even the whole monopoly board thing right where you know that i mean it's a little overdone you know whoosh, and, and that's i don't i'm not quite sure why they have a lamp even but uh since they have lights on but you know the, the whole thing kind of um you know, communicates without without communicates very economically it's a very economic movie um you know in, in those in those 90 minutes and in the plot there isn't there isn't very much plot there's a situation and they're dealing with you know th this kind of perpetual situation although i you know i think it gets i actually think it kind of gets gradually sillier as we go along um you know, from like the nail onward i did like the earpiece ending you know that that was a lot of fun that was also uh, the, the beats there were very solid. Her taking the thing off, putting it against the mic, um, it ending on the shotgun crank was was a lot of fun. Um, I I think though that like uh, the I, I love you, I've always loved you. That scene that he screams was was you know kind of awful actually. <laughs> you know I I think even like the the communication at the waterfall. Um, it also raises the the additional question of why didn't he bring his daughter along? Which he does seem to, he does seem to blame her for what happened. And we don't really have the him forgiving her thing because the, the movie's far too saccharine to allow him to actually be legitimately angry at her, right? It, it doesn't really seem to know what it wants to do. Um, we're, yeah, we're like not, there's no reason for him not to bring her along. Um, and if we didn't have that conversation, we would assume he was angry at her. And in the end, he, he forgave her, or got over it or something. But since we have that waterfall conversation, we're stuck in this kind of land of um, he, he, he's angry at her or he's not angry at her or, you know, something like that.
And she realizes too, not to go on and on, she realizes too he's not angry at her because she goes into the basement and sees the earpieces, right? She realizes how much care he has put into uh, improving her life, which also sends the message not of forgiveness, but um, I, you know, I, he, he always loved me, which is far less interesting. Maybe if he used the whiteboard to help him figure it out. <laughs> I still love her. Not, not, not the earpiece. <laughs> the engineering. Do I still love her? Yes. Circled with arrows pointing at it. Why? We can't finish this episode without addressing the nail. Okay. Something that had so much impact and you literally felt it going in her foot. And then it brought me so much dismay that nobody removed the nail. They didn't push it down. So it was so impactful and then so frustrating to me throughout the remainder of the film as people kept going up and down the stairs and not addressing this exposed nail. So I just had to at least bring it up. Has something I enjoyed so much frustrated me they could just bend it down like but she 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 stepped on the nail and then the monster came and that was it no there's other scenes when they're they're running back down to the basement to avoid more monsters right they're not like there's a there's a quiet part in a quiet place after (laughs) she gives birth that they have time to address things because the time she steps on it, they don't. No, the baby. There's a no. prime baby. They right? go. They go to a different basement. They go to like that bunker that they set up. Yeah, because they have to get the, the oxygen. Like the basement, right? Yeah, or the knockout or, oxygen, whatever it is. Yeah. I know what you're saying, but at the same time, it was really frustrating seeing the whole family go up and down those stairs yeah, barefoot it's, after it's, she already stepped on, and she didn't like address it at all. <laughs> so yeah. it's just well, like, she points it at him, but but it, it is a little uh, fr- it is it's a little con- <laughs> it is a little contrived, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah you know, yeah. it was. Just, ha- I liked when it happened the first time, but then I was just kind of like annoyed by it yeah. <laughs> that it's just there. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's how Quiet Place Two will start. Like, oh, let's get that nail. Well, they were hoping the monster would step on the nail. <laughs> Well, high pace too. It looks like they're gonna leave the farm and go elsewhere, but I don't know why. Can you not run the farm anymore without? I would like to see, and I'm sure I'll see it soon, Mm -hmm. in a few days. (laughs) What the catalyst is to leave because they have a nice little Mm. bubble there. So, but we'll see. Maybe it's the aftermath of all the noise from taking care of some of the monsters. I'd like to once again congratulate our winner of the week, Ragnar. Great job. And I actually mean it. Hey. Oh, thanks, guys. <laughs> On another note, check out our website, TalkingPicturesTrivia.com, for more information about us and our episodes. You can find us wherever you listen to podcasts as well as our YouTube channel. We are extremely grateful for any positive reviews as those help others like you find us. If you like what you hear, remember to like and subscribe to our show. Who do you think is the most likely person on our podcast to survive a quiet place environment and why? Let's continue the conversation on Twitter at Talking Studios. <laughs> Have additional thoughts? Email us at talkingpicturestrivia at gmail.com or give us a call at 201-467-8679 for a chance to be featured on one of our future From the Listeners episodes. Thanks again, Ragnar, for joining us today. Where can people find you? People can find me on Facebook. Just search Ragnar Carlson and you'll find me. 
You can find me on Twitter at ThomasLayman15 and also check out our other podcast, Talking Pictures Trivia B-Side, where we're doing a B-Side for this film. And you can find me on Twitter at KJ1000. I can also be found on Twitter at The Nicknamed. Join us next time when we start our summer blockbuster series and discuss Tom Summer Blockbuster from 1925, Charlie Chaplin's The Gold Rush. Stay tuned for our first impressions of The Gold Rush. Ding, 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 ding. I, I have like the Criterion Collection of Chaplin. So it's it's like it's like nine DVDs of just Charlie Chaplin movies that I still have, even though I have yet... As, as Pat saw this weekend, I have yet to plug in my television. <laughs> it's just in the center of my living room unplugged. But I still have like a, an enormous amount of, of Chaplin DVDs. And when I was um, a kid, I I, wa- I like watched through almost all of them. I don't think I've seen The Circus. And I certainly haven't seen The, the Countess of Hong Kong because I was, I was warned against watching that, um, you know, despite the Marlon Brando in, uh, appearance. Um, but like I, I really liked them when I was a kid, and I haven't watched those DVDs in part because of unplugged television uh, in, in a number of years. And it was nice to well, now I have Criterion the, the channel, so I could just I don't have to plug in the television; I could just put it on the computer. Um, but it was nice to get get back to it again. But yeah, that was something like I went through a Chaplin phase as a kid, and like like sixteen years old. I guess you're a teenager, not a kid at that point. But that was my first experience watching it. Yeah, I think that's how most kids get into Chaplin, right? High school, it's, you're either a varsity football player or a Charlie Chaplin. Player. <laughs> I, did, I did both. If that's <laughs> <laughs> you, bridge crosser, you. Yeah, well, I, I dropped the football team, so you know I'm still talking about Chaplin. Though. <laughs> what uh, what position did you play, Tom? I was uh, a D end, so okay. and, a, and a rather poor D end. I was the smallest D end on my team. Um, which was, yeah, it was a, a private high school. So they recruited. So I was like the little guy. Um, initially I was the fat guy and then I was just uh, <laughs> I, the little fellow. Well, that's probably why, because you were the fat guy. So you got, you, got, you were stuck as a defensive end. And then they were yeah, like, yeah. well, now you're thin and you're not strong. So you can't play this anymore. Yeah, you're not very good at this. You can bring water. Did you guys watch it together? The rest of the football team? Oh God, no! <laughs> they were like they were like psychopaths. So this was my first Charlie Chaplin movie. I hadn't seen one before this. Um, I'd seen one Buster Keaton movie, and this was okay. I don't know. Ah, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. I watched it uh, on the computer. I watched the 1925 version with this with the intertitles, um, and then I watched the the 42 version about halfway mm-hmm. through, and it felt like he was pitching the movie to me. He's kind of narrating. He's like, oh, 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 and this is the scene where we're going to do this. Like, it, it didn't feel like a coherent movie. It felt more like a, a pitch for a movie that he hadn't finished yet. It's it's like when, what's his name, re- releases Avatar, right? It's just like, <laughs> he's made a ton of money and we're going to do it again. I love I love something I saw about Avatar recently where somebody pointed out that they go, they go, here's the challenge. They go, it's the, it's the highest grossing film of all time. Can you name a single line of dialogue from that film? A single line. Give me one line from that movie. One. 
No, I mean, I, I've seen Chaplin movies before, at least, because I, I, I actually thought I had it on DVD. I have some other ones, but I only have, like, short ones. Um, so I don't have, um, I didn't have Gold Rush. But, um, so I, I watched it last night, uh, less than 24 hours ago, um, because I was I was asked to join. So um, so I watched, <laughs> it, last, I watched it last night, no problem. <laughs> yes, I actually, cheers, I, yeah. Yeah, no problem. Yeah, cheers. Um, I've got I've got more beer too, so we're good to go. Um, so, but uh, yeah, I, I I quite enjoyed it. I mean, as, as you know, I I like um, older movies and I like silent movies, so I actually I actually quite enjoyed it. Um, I, I thought it was one of the. I think it's actually, in all honesty, I think it's probably my favorite silent movie that I've seen. Um, I actually quite enjoyed it. I thought it was very good film. But yeah, so I suppose how I watched it last night was was sitting on my couch at a, at eleven thirty at night. Um, you know, we put the kids to bed, we watched the Mets game, and then we, uh, and then I put that on. So that was, yeah. that was how I watched it last night. Is DeGrom pitched, right? He did. He had a, he, he had a decent well. He did, yeah. he did pretty well. Now, I, I still, I still didn't clear. get a win. Yeah, I should be clear. I, I am, I am, you know, a Red Sox fan. Um, but my wife is a Mets fan, and DeGrom is my starting pitcher for my fantasy team. So, uh, um, mm. you know, I was, I was glad to see him have a, have a fine, have a fine outing. Yeah. I'm and, a, I'm and a, I haven't a, met her, but we've established you've already married up. <laughs> yeah i mean we we agreed to we agreed to split the kids so you know the their mets fans so actually we're going we're going to take one of one of them's been to about 50 games because we had season tickets for years so one of them's been to like 50 games we brought him to like all the games when he was like we, he, he went to a game when he was a week old he like got out of the NICU and he was at a baseball game the next day um so like so we um so he's been to many games but the the younger one hasn't been to a game because he couldn't go to a game last year um, cause there were no games. So he's never been to a game. So it will be one of their first games tomorrow. But so they're the, they're Mets fans. And then because I insisted they had to at least have a chance of winning a championship at some point, they're Patriots fans. Mm. Uh, so we have Patriots and Mets fans. A, a little late, huh? Um, I think there's plenty of time. I, I think, I think <laughs> we're, we're starting around a new, well, I mean, one of the, he's, he was alive for one of the Super Bowls wins. So he's, oh, okay. he's at least got already one on one under his belt. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but we'll we'll see. I think there's 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 you know time time for a new renaissance in the Patriots. I think it's it's been long enough without a win. Actually, this is my first um, Chaplin movie, as far as I can recall. Um, I could remember watching like <clears throat> Evan Costello, Laurel and Hardy, that kind of stuff. Um, but as far as silent movies go, I'm pretty sure this is my first. So I watched it kind of the inverse of what Pat did. I watched it at like five forty five in the morning before work because <laughs> um, that was about. All the free time I could squeeze in um, was that and with my morning coffee. Um, I, I don't know that it was necessarily for me. It, it was fine. I kind of appreciated it and I could kind of see, you know, some things that I guess, you know, everything that you've seen after it kind of take from it, but it, it was okay. I think I'm in KJ's camp. Yeah, I, I just thought Buster Keaton had much better screen presence, right? Not stage presence, screen presence. There, I, the the one Buster Keaton movie I saw was um, The General, which I guess mm-hmm. is a pretty famous Buster Keaton one. But it's early on in the film, he walks into somebody's house. I think the girl he's trying to court, and the way he walked into the house had me laughing hysterically. So just his physical comedy, I felt was better on screen than um, anything I saw Charlie Chaplin do in Gold Rush, but. Yeah, I, they're very different too. I, I mean, like Keaton is much more of a stuntman too. I mean, he takes a lot more mm, risks. Yeah. Chaplin really doesn't do that. Um, Keaton's also very blank, and Ch- uh, Chaplin's, you know, kind of very expressive. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, it's like, like the comparison I, I heard or the, the description of Chaplin I heard that was really kind of resonated with me was most slapstick, kind of like beer hall London slapstick up to that point was like, somebody walks into a tree and everybody laughs, you know, the sort of inheritance of Commedia dell'arte. And what Chaplin figured out was like, you walk into a tree and then you apologize to the tree, right? And that's what gets the laugh. Mm. And it's kind of like the difference mm -hmm. between him and, and Keaton was Keaton was very much about kind of pushing the pushing what you walked into and Chaplin was much more kind of um, much more delicate in the responses 